0: Hello and welcome to the Leaders Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital city as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on today's programme by Janet Schofield. Janet is the CEO of CAN, also known as Compass Advocacy Network, a charity in Northern Ireland working with young people and adults with learning disabilities. Janet, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us today
1: thank you It's lovely and sunny in northern ireland
0: oh you're very very fortunate indeed um so the purpose of this discussion janet really is to understand um your take on leadership as a whole. And leadership, I think it's fair to say, is something that's really being put to the test at the moment, isn't it? With the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and different leaders of businesses, organisations, and of course, governments having to feel their way through what is an unprecedented crisis. Tell me, for somebody working within the care industry, such as yourselves, how has it been trying to navigate the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine it's posed a challenge for yourselves as well.
1: Yeah, I mean, from day one, there was a lot of uncertainty. Um, fortunately, we had kind of predicted uh, the situation. We're watching the news very closely, and we actually met on the 16th of March as a team um, and created a plan to provide an emergency service. Because our our work is all about people, so we have over 450 people who access support from us, um, our, our biggest concern was how do we keep people. Um, buoyant, how do we keep them Mm -hmm. supported and how do we continue to provide services um, when we're not actually physically able to be in the building so while we did have a plan around social distancing to start then it very much became about okay, when the government shut down it was right, we're going to have to rethink this Um, so we really did, uh, we were tested to the hilt But the the voluntary um, charitable sector tend to be quite a creative bunch. Uh, We generally are working on a two-string budget, and we're very much on the edge of our wits all the time. So we were able to come up very quickly with a concept around um, broadcasting live daily uh, to our 176 people initially. Uh, who would have been accessing services on a daily basis. Um, really, as uh, as a management team, uh, we, we started to look at, you know, where the most need was, where the greatest need was, and how we could be impactful um, with the tools that we had, bearing in mind that we weren't able to be together, that we were all going to home working. Uh, so it was, it was it was extremely challenging at the start. Um, and all of the, the, because we had to put measures in very, very quickly, everything, everything felt a bit clunky. And unprofessional at the start, uh, but I'm I'm glad to say that over the period of time we have actually been able to to make that much more slick, um, and to maintain that service, which which has been challenging at times because you're very much pulling on people's resources continually.
0: And I think it throws up a whole new list of challenges, doesn't it? Having to work remotely, not just of course with fellow staff members, but also with those people that you work with as well, those young people, those adults with disabilities. And I can imagine um, doing that from a distance can also be quite um, a complex challenge in itself. Um, So how has it been sort of um, with, with that side of things? Do you think that both staff and those that you work with have sort of taken to this transition well?
1: Yeah, I I think staff initially were concerned, you know, around childcare. Obviously, most most of my staff are fairly young, have children at home, um, or have caring responsibilities. So yes, I mean that that was one of the challenges. So we we basically put in measures that allowed some flexibility around that. So if staff needed to work later on into the evenings to make phone calls, um, to maybe prepare videos in advance of going live on Facebook at half past one every day or they needed to um, have their Zoom calls a little bit later, we did that. But similarly, um, the biggest issue for us really was around the connectivity. Uh, we are, you know, we're living out in rural communities. Um, a lot of people aren't, you know, the internet connection's poor. Um, and some people weren't connected at all. So some of our adults, the disability in particular, just didn't have that connectivity and didn't have anybody that was living with them that were able to set them up. Um, with you know, access to online resources. So we have had to be creative in that and do things a bit differently. Uh, we were able to uh deliver, hand deliver um using social distancing, uh activity packs for individuals that mm. enabled those that weren't connected to the internet to be able to you know have things that they could be doing um, and similarly doing some social distancing social socially distanced visiting. Um, to make sure that nobody was in crisis. So, yeah, it it was very challenging, and particularly um, where you're not physically in a space with individuals who are very vulnerable. um, And there have been a number of safeguarding issues which have had to be processed in a normal way. Um, But when you're not actually physically with somebody, it's very hard sometimes to gauge body language, to gauge the situation that they're in. um, And, you know, it, it, it puts an extra dimension into the vulnerability as well. Mm. Um, but certainly so far to date, um, we you know, the, the feedback from families, from the individuals themselves has been phenomenal. Um and in many ways it will change the way that we work. I mean, some individuals that we would have seen as particularly vulnerable, particularly our individuals with autism, um have actually blossomed during the period. Um they're they're in their their safe space where there are no unpredictable journeys to get into physical services. Um and they they are comfortable with the, the environment and with the technology. Uh, so we've had individuals now who, you know, are making their own videos who are talking very openly about their mental health, who are talking about their learning disability and their autism very openly and sharing that with others, which has been phenomenal. Mm. So yeah, there's um, been a lot of challenges, but a lot of mm. really positive
0: things come out of this as well. And what I'm interested to know um, as well Janet is because of course being based in Northern Ireland um, the lockdown restrictions are being lifted at a slightly different pace to what's seen yeah. in England and the rest of the UK because that's essentially controlled by the Legislative Assembly. Um, okay. Schools are targeted for a reopening date in Northern Ireland of the 17th of August I believe correct me if I'm wrong and one of the most important things for especially young people who are suffering from mental health traumas is routine. That's incredibly important. Everybody's aware of that. And um, they've essentially had routine, especially when it comes to school, sort of essentially deprived um during this uh, period. And do you think that maybe they're going to be going back into that sort of school routine, those that do attend school early enough uh, for you? Are you sort of satisfied um, with that sort of target?
1: I think um there's I think seventeen focuses particularly for certain year groups, so it's for those that are heading into exams mm-hmm. um, we haven't actually had a date as far as now um for other children, but I think it's you know they're planning to go back in september. Northern Ireland would generally we we have about eight to nine weeks of school holidays anyway, um so actually we generally our school term ends at the end of June, so we would have July and August off, um yes, I think that has. But saying that, I think that um, the, the the period of time that people have been off and the lack of routine has been very, very challenging. More so now, um, and it's actually now that we're feeling the impact of that because parents are going back to work or looking towards going back to work um, and there is a worry and a fear around individuals as to what's going to happen next. Um, certainly from our point of view, um, we work quite closely with the local trusts Um, And the Trust is now um, looking at plans to get day centres back open, day services reopened. um, And that will obviously then have a knock-on impact on ourselves and how we can open our physical services. While we tend to work with um, quite independent individuals, similarly, you know, it, it would be quite a high ratio of individuals that would be in our physical buildings going out into community settings. Um, and that's going to be a major challenge for us now coming forward.
0: And do you think that in terms of what the new normal is going to look like, that you're very aware and comfortable with what's expected of you, just because there's been a great deal of debate about the, clear, the clarity of the guidelines from Westminster, for example, but that may not necessarily be the case with Stormont? Yeah,
1: well, we've we've just had a paper um, issued there yesterday from Health and Social Care, um, as I'm sure you know, you're aware Health and Social Care are are both together in Northern Ireland. Mm-hmm. Um, so Social Care sits with Health, as opposed to with local authorities. Mm-hmm. Um, and the paper was redu- was released yesterday. Now we have some concerns about that paper um, because it does not really acknowledge uh, the voluntary sector in that um as a partner going forward um in you know building back the services. Um however you know we are quite clear as to what our restrictions will be. Um can as an organisation we have multiple um funders um and that includes both statutory um trust funding so the likes of big lottery, children in need, etc. Um, and it's only because of the mix of funding that we've had that we've been able to continue the volume of support um, for the individuals. Now, if you take that, we would have been working on a one staff member to 17 people um, for the likes of our base services previously because our individuals were very independent. It was all about, you know, going out into the community, going into the shops, um, you know, going up to Belfast on the train, et cetera going to a one-to-one ratio where it's one staff member phoning or interacting with an individual on Zoom call um, and then having to ramp that up into a physical service the next stage of the coronavirus, um, it, this is going to be the next biggest challenge for us, really, maintaining social distancing while getting back to some sort of physical services um, where we will, you know, it's going to take a long time to build back up to where we were previously. And there are going to be need, there, there's going to be additional resources needed, but whether those resources are forthcoming or not is a different matter. Um, the the charity voluntary sector was already struggling, and now I think this is this is going to bring added pressures. So um, you know we're we have a vision of what we would like to see, but whether we're going to have the support to provide the resources for that is a different matter going forward.
0: And it's really shone a light, um, hasn't it, on the struggles of the social care sector all over the uh, the UK and how it's funded this period. So that's something that we should certainly heed going forward. And interestingly, on the social distancing issue as well, for the benefit of those listening to this, we're recording on the 11th of June 2020. And there is now being a lot of pressure applied in Westminster by Conservative MPs to the government on relaxing the two metre social distancing rules, just to help businesses open up again, particularly in the hospitality industry. So we could be seeing some changes perhaps on the horizon there. But if we do just tend to speculate a little bit on the uh, the future, Janet, before we do wrap things up on the programme today, what do you yourself envision happening over the next 12 to 18 months for yourself and for Can? And what do you hope to sort of achieve as we move through the pandemic, hopefully emerge from it and begin to look to the long term future under the new normal?
1: Um, from Cam's perspective, you know, we're we're busy planning. I mean, the voluntary sector is, is quite good at forecasting and looking forward to the future anyway because of the way that we're funded um, and the way that we generate our income as well. Um, so we're looking forward to a situation where we can get people back together. And, you know, it'd probably in the, in the short to medium term, we're looking at a blended situation where we may have some individuals who are able to come into services um, and physically distance, and then other individuals who will be um, supported remotely or by, you know, being quite creative actually and looking at ways that we can get individuals together in parks, in public spaces, um, and maintaining kind of support for individuals in that way. Um, fortunately, the voluntary community sector is, is well versed in being creative on a very low budget. Um, And and my my hope for my staff team and for our organisation, because we are all about people, is that we can retain that sense of community and maintain the support that we currently provide going forward. Um, It isn't going to be an easy uh, transition and certainly we're going to need uh, a lot of support from public health, from our trust partners and, and also from our funders. Um, in their support to get things up and running. Um, and I do think there's going to be a lot of challenges outside of our organisation as well. There are going to be a lot of challenges for other organisations who have lost a lot of um, their fundraising income um, in the interim as well. So that may have a knock-on effect on the likes of mental health services or adults with disabilities. And hopefully, you know, as an organisation, we can come together and try and support, support those gaps and continue to lobby as well for support for the most vulnerable society. I mean, the people that we work with are the people without a voice. Um, and we are very adamant that we will make sure that that voice is heard wherever we can.
0: And over the next few months, uh, Janet, as things do essentially begin to uh, change as we move through the course of uh, this uh, terrible and most tragic situation, I think it would actually be fantastic to catch up and have you back on the air with us again, just to see how some of those hopes are being borne out, and just reflect on exactly what's changed in the time between. I think from a listener's perspective, that would be incredibly informative. That
1: would be great, yes, absolutely.
0: It would be a pleasure for myself um, as well, Janet, just as it's been having you on the the program with us today. It's a shame we don't have more time. Otherwise, we could talk about it long into the afternoon, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> but um, in the meantime, before we do touch base again, I'm sure in the future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on, because we're certainly not out of the woods quite with this one yet.
1: Thank you. Yourself, too.
0: That was Janet Schofield speaking, the CEO of Can Compass Advocacy Network. Coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord David Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and of course, the Chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation – holding various positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August 2015. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next.
2: Lord Blunkett, welcome.
3: Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you.